Section 10 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Cardinal de Richelieu, Part 2. But Richelieu was not such a bigot as Louis Fourteenth. He was a statesman and took enlightened views of the welfare of the country. Therefore, he contented himself with destroying the fortifications of La Rochelle, filling up its ditches, and changing its government. He continued, in a modified form, the religious privileges conceded by the Edict of Nantes, but he kept a strict watch, humiliated the body by withholding civil equalities and offices in the army and navy, treating with disdain their ministers, and taking away their social rank, so that they became plebeian and unimportant. He pursued the same course that the English government adopted in reference to dissenters in the 18th century, when they were excluded from Oxford and Cambridge and church burial grounds. So that Protestantism in France, after the fall of La Rochelle, never asserted its dignity, in spite of Bibles, consistories, and schools. Degraded at court, deprived of the great offices of the state, despised, rejected, and persecuted, it languished and declined. Having subdued the Huguenots, Richelieu turned his attention to the nobles, the most worthless, arrogant, and powerful of all the nobility of Europe, men who made royalty a mockery and law a name. I have alluded to their intrigues, ambition, and insolence. It was necessary that they should be humiliated, decimated, and punished, if central power was to be respected. So he cut off their towering heads, exiled and imprisoned them whenever they violated the laws, or threatened the security of the throne or the peace of the realm. As individuals, they hated him and conspired against his rule. Had they combined, they would have been more powerful than he, but they were too quarrelsome, envious, and short-sighted to combine. The person who hated Richelieu most fiercely and bitterly was the Queen Mother, widow of Henry IV, regent during the minority of Louis Thirteenth, And no wonder, for he had cheated her and betrayed her. She was a very formidable enemy, having a great ascendancy over the mind of her son, the king. And once, it is said, she had so powerfully wrought upon him by her envenomed sarcasms, in the palace of the Luxembourg, where she lived in royal state, that the king had actually taken the parchment in his hand to sign the disgrace of his minister. But he was watched by an eye that never slept. Richelieu suddenly appearing, at the critical moment, from behind tapestries where he had concealed himself, fronted and defied his enemy. The king, bewildered, had not nerve enough to face his own servant, who, however, made him comprehend the dangers which surrounded his throne and person, and compelled him to part with his mother, the only woman he ever loved, and without permitting her to imprint upon his brow her own last farewell. And the world saw the extraordinary spectacle of this once powerful queen, the mother of a long line of kings, compelled to lead a fugitive life from court to court repulsed from England by her son-in-law, refused a shelter in Holland, insulted by Spain, neglected by Rome, and finally obliged to crave an asylum from Rubens the painter, and, driven from one of his houses, forced to hide herself in Cologne, where, deserted by all her children, and so reduced by poverty as to break up the very furniture of her room for fuel, she perished miserably between four empty walls, on a wretched bed, destitute, helpless, heartbroken, and alone. Such was the power, and such was the vengeance of the cardinal on the highest personage of France. Such was the dictation of a priest to a king who personally disliked him. Such was his ascendancy, not by druidical weapons, but by genius presenting reasons of state. The next most powerful personage in France was the Duke of Orléans, brother of the king, who sought to steal his scepter. As he was detected in treasonable correspondence with Spain, he became a culprit, but was spared after making a humiliating confession and submission. 
but Condé, the first prince of the blood, was shut up in prison, and the powerful Duke of Guise was exiled. Richelieu took away from the Duke of Bouillon his sovereignty of Sedan, forced the proud Epernon to ask pardon on his knees, drove away from the kingdom the Duke of Vendome, natural brother of the king, executed the Duke of Montmorency, whose family traced an unbroken lineage to Faramond, confined Marshal Bassompierre to the Bastille, arrested Marshal Mariac at the head of a conquering army, cut off the head of Cinq-Mars, grand equerry and favorite of the king, and executed on the scaffold the counts of Chalet and Boudeville. All these men were among the proudest and most powerful nobles in Europe. They all lived like princes and had princely revenues and grand offices, but had been caught with arms in their hands, or in treasonable correspondence. What hope for ordinary culprits when the proudest feudal nobles were executed or exiled like common malefactors? Neither rank nor services could screen them from punishment. The great minister had no mercy and no delay even for the favorites of royalty. Nay, the king himself became his puppet and was forced to part with his friends, his family, his mistresses, and his pleasures. Some of the prime ministers of kings have had as much power as Richelieu, but no minister before or since has ruled the monarch himself with such an iron sway. How weak the king, or how great the minister! The third great force which Richelieu crushed was the Parliament of Paris. It had the privilege of registering the decrees of the king, and hence was a check, the only check, on royal authority, unless the king came in person into the assembly and enforced his decree by what was called a bed of justice. This body, however, was judicial rather than legislative, made up of pedantic and aristocratic lawyers who could be troublesome. We get some ideas of the humiliation of this assembly of lawyers and nobles from the speech of Omer Talon, the greatest lawyer of the realm, when called upon to express the sentiments of his illustrious body to the king at a bed of justice. Happy should we be, most gracious sovereign, if we could obtain any favor worthy of the honor which we derive from your majesty's presence. But the entry of your sacred person into our assembly unfits us for our functions. And inasmuch as the throne on which you are seated is a light that dazzles us, now, if it please you, the heavens which you inhabit, and after the example of the eternal sovereign whose image you bear, condescend to visit us with your gracious mercy. What a contrast to this servile speech was the conduct of the English Parliament about this time, in its memorable resistance to Charles I, and how different would have been the political destinies of the English people if Stratford, just such a man as Richelieu, had succeeded in his schemes. But in England the Parliament was backed by the nation, at least by the middle classes. In France the people had then no political aspirations. Among them a Cromwell could not have arisen, since a Cromwell would not have been sustained. Thus Richelieu, by will and genius, conquered all his foes in order to uphold the throne, and thus elevate the nation. For as Sir James Stephen says, the grandeur of the monarchy and the welfare of France with him were but convertible terms. He made the throne the first in Europe, even while he who sat upon it was personally contemptible. He gave luster to the monarchy, while he himself was an unarmed priest. It was a splendid fiction to make the king nominally so powerful, while really he was so feeble. But royalty was not a fiction under his successor. How respectable did Richelieu make the monarchy? What a deep foundation did he lay for royalty under Louis the Fourteenth? What a magnificent inheritance did he bequeath to that monarch? Nothing was done for forty years which he had not foreseen and prepared. His successor, Mazarin, only prospered so far as he followed out his instructions. And the star of Louis the Fourteenth did not pale so long as the policy which Richelieu bequeathed was the rule of his public acts. The Magnificent of Louis was only the sequel of the energy and genius of Richelieu. 
Versailles was really the gift of him who built the Palais Royal. The services of Richelieu to France did not end with centralizing power around the throne. He enlarged the limits of the kingdom and subdued her foreign enemies. Great rivers and mountains became the national boundaries, within which it was easy to preserve conquests. He was not ambitious of foreign domination, he simply wished to make the kingdom impregnable. Had Napoleon pursued this policy, he could never have been overthrown, and his dynasty would have been established. It was the policy of Elizabeth and of Cromwell. I do not say that Richelieu did not enter upon foreign wars, but it was to restore the balance of power, not to add kingdoms to the empire. He rendered assistance to Gustavus Adolphus, in spite of the protests of Rome and the disgust of Catholic powers, in order to prevent the dangerous ascendancy of Austria, thus setting an example for William III and Pitt himself in his warfare against Napoleon. In these days we should prefer to see the balance of power maintained by a congress of nations, rather than by vast military preparations and standing armies, which eat out the resources of nations. But in the seventeenth century there was no other way to maintain this balance than by opposing armies. Nor did Richelieu seek to maintain the peace of Europe by force alone. Never was there a more astute and profound diplomatist. His emissaries were in every court, with intrigues very hard to be baffled. He equaled Metternich or Talleyrand in his profound dissimulation, for European diplomacy has ever been based on this. While he built up absolutism in France, he did not alienate other governments, so that, like Cromwell, he made his nation respected abroad. His conquest of Roussillon prepared the way for the famous Treaty of the Pyrenees under the administration of Mazarin. While vigorous in war, his policy was on the whole pacific, like that of all Catholic priests who have held power in France. He loved glory indeed, but like Sully and Colbert, he also wished to develop the national resources, and, as indeed all enlightened statesmen from Moses downward have sought to do, he wished to make the country strong for defense rather than offense. He showed great sagacity as well as an enlightened mind. The ablest men were placed in office. The army and navy were reorganized. Corruption and peculation on the part of officials was severely punished. The royal revenue was increased. Roads, bridges, canals were built and repaired, and public improvements were made. The fine arts were encouraged, and even learning was rewarded. It was he who founded the French Academy, although he excluded from it men of original genius whose views he did not like. Law and order were certainly restored, and anarchy ceased to reign. The rights of property were established, and the finances freed from embarrassments. So his rigid rule tended to the elevation of France, absolutism proved necessary in his day and under his circumstances. When arraigned at the bar of posterity, he claims, like Napoleon, to be judged for his services and not for his defects of character. These defects will forever make him odious in spite of his services. I hardly know a more repulsive benefactor. He was vain, cold, heartless, rigid, and proud. He had no amiable weakness. His smile was a dagger and his friendship was a snare. He was a hypocrite and a tyrant. He had no pity on a fallen foe, and even when bending under the infirmities of age and in the near prospect of death, his inexorable temper was never for a moment subdued. The execution of Saint-Mars and de Tau took place when he had one foot in his grave. He deceived everybody, sent his spies into the bosom of families, and made expediency the law of his public life. But it is nothing to the philosophic student of history that he built the Palais Royal, or squandered riches with Roman prodigality, or rewarded players, or enriched Marion Delorme, or clad himself in mail before La Rochelle, or persecuted his early friends, or robbed the monasteries, or made a spy of Father Joseph, or exiled the Queen Mother, or kept the King in bondage, or sent his enemies to the scaffold. These things are all against him, and make him appear in a repulsive light. But if he brought order out of confusion, 
and gave a blow to feudalism and destroyed anarchies and promoted law and developed the resources of his country, making that country formidable and honorable, and constructed a vast machinery of government by which France was kept together for a century and would have fallen to pieces without it, then there is another way to survey this bad man, and we view him not only as a great statesman and ruler, but as an instrument of providence raised up as a terror to evildoers. We may hate absolutism, but must at the same time remember that there are no settled principles of government, any more than of political economy. That is the best government, which is best adapted to the exigency of that human society which at the time it serves. Republicanism would not do in China any more than despotism in New England. Bad men, somehow or other, must be coerced and punished. The more prevalent is depravity, so much more necessary is despotic vigor. It will be so to the end of time. It is all nonsense to dream of liberty with a substratum of folly and vice. Unless evils can be remedied by the public itself, giving power to the laws which the people create, then physical force, hard and cold tyranny, must inevitably take the place. No country will long endure anarchy, and then the hardest characters may prove the greatest benefactors. It is on this principle that I am reconciled to the occasional rule of despots, and when I see a bad man, like Richelieu, grasping power to be used for the good of a nation, I have faith to believe it to be ordered wisely. When men are good and honest and brave, we shall have Washingtons. When they are selfish and lawless, God will send Richelieu's and Napoleons, if he has good things in store for the future, even as he sends Nero's and Diocletian's when a nation is doomed to destruction by incurable rottenness. And yet absolutism in itself is not to be defended. It is what enlightened nations are now striving to abolish. It is needed only under certain circumstances. If it were to be perpetuated in any nation, it would be satanic. It is endurable only because it may be destroyed when it has answered its end, and, like all human institutions, it will become corrupted. It was shamefully abused under Louis Fourteenth and Louis Fifteenth, but when corrupted and abused it has, like slavery, all the elements of certain decay and ruin. The abuse of power will lead to its own destruction, even as undue haste in the acquisition of riches tendeth to poverty. Authorities Petiot's Memoirs sur la Régine de Louis XIII, Secret History of the French Court by Cousin, Les Clercs Vie de Richelieu, Henri Martin's History of France, Memoirs de Richelieu by Michaud and Pujola, Life of Richelieu by Cape Fig and E. E. Crow and G. P. R. James, Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopédia, Histoire de Ministre du Cardinal de Richelieu by A. J., Michelet's Life of Henry the Fourth and Richelieu, Biographie Universelle, Sir James Stephen's Lectures on the History of France. End of section ten.